Hello everyone, this is Dummies on Theology. I'm Pastor Chuck and I'm here with Guy the IT Guy Hello. and with Bruce, the faithful sidekick. Yes sir. And we have a very special guest today. We have on the phone with us today the Reverend Dr. President John Nunez. And I've got his biography here. It's like six pages, so we're just going to kind of have to keep it short. But uh, he is an ordained LCMS minister, was president and chief executive officer of Lutheran World Relief in Baltimore from 2007 to 2013. Lutheran World Relief is an international nonprofit organization working to end poverty and injustice worldwide. Before that, he taught theology at Concordia University Chicago in River Forest, served as a management consultant, uh, urban parish pastor, and community organizer in Dallas and Detroit. That alone is pretty impressive, but let's get to his degrees. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Concordia College, now Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, a Master of Divinity degree from Concordia Seminary, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, both Master of Theology and Doctor of Philosophy degree from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, and he also has received honorary doctorates from Concordia University, Ann Arbor, and Carthage College, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and now serves as the president of Concordia Bronxville. And uh, he is also, and I'm putting him on the spot here, uh, so he'll probably never come back, but he is also, correct me if I'm wrong, you are a memorizer of poetry when you walk to work. Is that yes, correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. How do you know this? How in the world do you know this? <laughs> because I was in a conference once, and I remember things. I'm a former English teacher, so I'm very impressed when someone ah. tells me. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything that you are currently memorizing that would be of any interest to share with us? Well, what a great question. Uh, I love... Uh, W.H. Auden, for example, um, and he's got this fabulous piece in his Christmas oratorio, but it really applies uh, to all sorts of situations. He simply says, we who must die demand a miracle. How could the infinite become a finite fact? The eternal do a temporal act. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. I really like that. Ooh, wow. Yeah, now, I, like I would like too. to say again for the listeners, he did not know I was asking that question. <laughs> he was unaware that I knew he memorized poetry. So that's just off the cuff, and that is impressive, folks. And yes. what a great way to start to think about we who die are in need of a miracle. And uh, the reason we asked Dr. Nunez on, he said we could call him John, so I'll call him John. The reason he's on is because... We would like to talk currently in the world. We all know about the George Floyd event, his tragic death, and the subsequent riots and everything else going on in America. And there's a hurting in the world. And it needs... A miracle. A miracle, <laughs> yes. And it needs a voice, to, to, to uh, some ears to listen and a voice to speak. And coming from a white church, like the Lutheran Church as we do... Uh, we would like to find out, can we have a voice, should we have a voice in, in those communities, the African-American communities, the Hispanic communities, wherever it might be, because we still believe that what we have for people, the gospel, is a good thing, but do we have a right to, to talk to them, or how can we earn that right, maybe is a better way, to, to enter into conversation and dialogue with them 
to express we understand your hurts and your needs as much as we can. So, John, that's kind of where we're at, and because you're the expert, uh, you've got the letters and numbers and things to prove that. We're going to kind of get out of your way and uh, let you talk a little bit. Well, Pastor Chuck, I just want to, you and uh, Bruce and Guy, I want to just commend you for um, engaging really difficult questions like these uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ um, and for engaging them in this format as well, uh, an informal conversation. So I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate yeah. you being here. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. So just to jump in, is that what you'd like yeah, to Yeah, just go ahead and jump okay. in. Uh, yeah, okay, so there's obviously a lot of consternation. Um, that's a, probably an understatement. Uh, as we see uh, you know, our cities on fire, and we hear the fiery chants of crowds who are um, fed up with um, and frustrated by uh, the situation in the United States. So what is the situation uh, that sparked this? Of course, it is the, um, the gruesome uh, event that we witnessed on Memorial Day. Uh, it occurred on Memorial Day, and we, we, we witnessed it far too many times. Uh, of the uh, agent of the state, an agent of the state, so a police officer, a government, uh, you know, someone who represents kind of uh, government and the arm of uh, justice, uh, applying his knee to the uh, neck of, uh, of, uh, of a civilian and uh, choking the life out of him. And uh, here he is, someone dying like a dog in the street. And I don't care what race uh, George Floyd is, uh, this is a heinous and reprehensible act. And uh, I think there's been a lot of you know, conversations about race that have been sparked by uh, what we witnessed. But this is a violation of, you know, what God has intended for humans. Um, that we are created in the image of God, and God has said that, you know, we have no right to, uh, uh, to commit murder and, or to tamper that image. Um, and so um, this is this goes this goes at the heart of uh, of um, of all that is not good. And uh, I, I'd like to, if I, if I could, Pastor Chuck, just separate what we saw from the question of race, because we don't know exactly what motivated uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, the uh, the police officer. We you know we we don't know what his state of mind was, and we don't know why he would do what uh, he, we saw, we all saw him do it. There's no question about that. But we don't know the why. Um, so I do think the conversation around race is important, but I don't think it's uh, um, helpful to say that the only reason George Floyd is dead is because of race. Right. That's so, a strong statement, but I, I just want to put that out there just for starters. So do you think, though, in those communities, especially his community, where this event occurred, because it happens so often, we go immediately to the race card? Well, the bigger problem is that black men uh, die at a rate that so greatly exceeds any other demographic category in the United States of America. And they die at everybody's hands. The kind of minimization or diminishment of the life of, of the lives of African American males in the United States—that's the scandal. Uh, you know, uh, on the same day that uh, George Floyd was killed by the police officer, there were 49 uh, people on the city of Chicago 
who were shot, mostly African-Americans, mostly males, uh, 10 of whom died, and mostly at the hands of, of, uh, of other uh, African-Americans. So I think the diminishment of life as a whole is the issue here. Um, and you could say that people who have suffered through centuries of racial hatred have internalized some of that, perhaps, and are now engaging in um, horrific uh, self-hatred in terms of so-called black-on-black crime. But, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I think the community has a right to be upset, uh, has a right to be enraged at the belittling of life of, of black males. So how do you think we get or have gotten to this point where there is so little regard for For human life, whether it's African-American, Hispanic, white, whatever it might be? You're right. That's a great question, especially in a nation that has such high ideals, right? Our Constitution, which ensures this kind of enshrines this inalienable right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the you know, and the pursuit of so-called happiness, um, which I think is a misunderstood category, but uh, that's another that's another podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, how have we got to this point? I mean, you know, you, 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 obviously slavery is a place where it began. The kind of brutalization of a people who are chattel slaves. Um, uh, you know, the kind of history and legacy of of lynching and of uh, Jim Crow segregation. Uh, you know, um, the, the violence that was sort of normalized um, against, uh, against a, a group of people uh, for decades and decades and decades. And uh, I believe that the United States is the greatest experiment in pluralism in the history of the planet. Um, and this is one of the pangs of pluralism, namely that when you have a group of people where there's difference, they have to negotiate and navigate that difference, and that's not so easy to do. Um, you know, it's not easy for Christians to do it. It's even harder for the world to do it. Um, so, you know, sin is the short answer. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know the, the middle letter in the word sin is I, and, you know, people are pretty good at that. They're pretty good at me, myself, and I. And they're pretty good at kind of being curved in on selves. So people are really good at, you know, the middle letter in the word tribe is also an I. By the way, that's just coincidental to the English language. I know that you love the English language. Uh, so it doesn't inherently mean anything, of course, that you know, those are the middle letters. But it's, 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 it's curious that, the, you know, that, uh, you know, we have this kind of tribalism uh, that is very natural for humans. We're kind of, you know, born with it, this kind of tribal instinct which is really good when you're on the Serengeti plane and really good when you're trying to, you know, protect yourself against the enemy. You know, the kind of the preservation of your family or your group depends on a certain degree of tribalism uh, or, or affinity to the tribe and the recognition of that which is different. It's not good, on the other hand, when you're attempting to construct a very diverse pluralistic society. And it's, but it's, I believe it's instinctual. I think people do this naturally. And I think, uh, you know, that we shouldn't be surprised when we have so much difficulty at uh, this exercise and experiment in e pluribus unum. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Guy. Do you, do you see uh, um, the church being able to uh, effectively reach out to these individuals who are hurting the the that's not yeah. exactly the question i was 
trying to formulate, but that's... Well, let me jump in, because my question was along the lines of guys. Where does the church then fit into this pluralism to be a voice of something yeah. other than hatred or something other yeah. than segregation? Yeah, that's a great question, Pastor Chuck. Um, so I think it really starts with a recognition, and uh, since we identified sin as the problem, and by the way, uh, the fact that we are Christians does not mean that we are without sin. It's one of the things I like about Lutheran theology. There's a kind of recognition that even believers are at the same time sinful, and yet they are, of course, made saints because of Jesus Christ. But the fact we carry around this sin nature that's drowned in the waters of baptism, but like Luther said, uh, the old Adam is a really good swimmer, and you know he kind of claws his way back into our lives. Uh, I believe that racism is a sin, and I think that the church needs to first spend time identifying that sin within uh, itself. And so, if I can just talk about a little bit of a tech, what I call my taxonomy of racism. Can I talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Okay, so, so nobody gets off the hook. It's kind of like sin, you know. If you, if you say you are without sin, you deceive yourselves, and the truth is not <laughs> in you. Nobody gets off the hook. Yet everybody, it seems, tries to engage, I myself, in self-justifying behavior. Um, so I have this, this kind of way I've been thinking, and I would really like your critique uh, of this way of thinking, about um, you know, the kind of ways in which there are multiple ways to be racist. So you know, there's the obvious way. You know, there's the kind of you know, hardcore white supremacist. That's very, very obvious. You know, so you know, the, the person who believes that his or her uh, culture is inherently superior to everybody else on the planet. And so there's this kind of racial essentialism uh, it's called, and it sees itself as better than others, just on the basis of blood and soil, as it were. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty easy to identify. But I also say that there are more um, liberal forms of racism that are equally pernicious, that are equally um, uh, difficult to navigate, and in some cases more difficult to navigate, because they're less, they're well-intended often. You know, and, and, and Michael Gerson came up with a term I like. He calls it the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> Namely, the, yeah, right? I like so that. we, well, you know, these these people, you know, they just they're just not. They just they just you know they're doing the best they can. Okay, what do you expect? Okay, they, you know, so it doesn't hold the standard. It doesn't. You know, I'm an academic, so you know, and I have a very diverse student body. And I don't let people off the hook based on, you know, the fact that you come from a different sort of background. Um, so that's, that's a soft bigotry of low expectations, which is, I think, equally devastating as the kind of hardcore kind of right-wing supremacism. And then there's, a, again, the more kind of, uh, you know, the more kind of run-of-the-mill, everyday, you know, kind of namby-pamby, moderate racist who says something like, you know, I don't see race. Yeah, I hear a lot of Christians say that, too. I, I don't see race. I don't see it. Well, Pastor Chuck, it's impossible to not see race. I mean, that's like me saying when I met my wife, who, by the way, is a very beautiful woman. Yeah, when, I met her, yeah, when I met her, she was, uh, you know, also very beautiful. And 
And so it's like me saying when I met her, oh, I didn't see gender or, you know, I didn't see the fact that she was a female. I just missed that. I just saw a blob of humanity, you know, or something like that. Of course, you see what you see. We all see what our eyes see. But it's what we do with what we see that matters. It's not whether or not we see that there are people who are um, who are different than we. So, um, for example, a five -year my five-year-old son. He plays right. baseball, and he sees, he knows the kid playing second base has darker skin than he does. He mm -hmm. knows he's black, but so he sees the race, but to him, it's just a teammate and a friend. Well, yeah, he hasn't attached meaning yet. Correct. Uh, but know, he, he still sees the color, the but race. He still sees the color, of course he does. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, and there's a story told, it happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Do you guys know anything about that? We know a little bit about really? Tulsa. <laughs> Yeah, there's a city in uh, Oklahoma called Tulsa, and uh, and it, it involves the most famous African American historian. His name is John Hope Franklin. He recently died, or maybe uh, seven seven years ago. And he's a, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's from Tulsa, and uh, he uh, tells this story or told this story of when he was a Boy Scout, twelve years old, and he, he was trying to do his good deed of the day, and he was in downtown Tulsa. And there was a blind woman attempting to cross the street. And so he grabbed her arm and he said, ma'am, I'm happy to help you across the street. And she said, please, thank you so much, young man. And they were walking across the street in some part of the way across the street. She must have noticed something about maybe his dialect or something. And she said, son, would you happen to be a colored boy, the term that was used in that time? And he puffed his chest out and was very proud of the fact that she had noted that this uh, black kid could do a good deed. And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, then take your dirty hands off of me. Huh. And he went away crying, trying to understand, what is it about my hands that are dirty? But hmm. this was a blind woman, and she saw race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay? So, yeah. I mean, I mean we, you know, it, we, we all kind of see, it's what we do with what we see. It's what we do with the difference that we see. And, I, and here's where I believe faith is really important, because faith gives us a new set of eyes. You know, we, uh, the scripture says, we regard no one according to the flesh, with the Greek in that, katasarks, no one according to the flesh. So we don't regard people any longer according, it doesn't say there are no more race, but it, there still is Jew and Greek and male, there still is male and female, there still is slave, working class and free management class, okay, those, those things still exist, um, but it's what you do with those categories that then change, and that Christianity has a history of changing in the lives of people. In, in some ways, Christianity has been the most liberating movement in the history right. of the planet. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. So how do, how do we move past our eyes that see differences to get eyes to see the things that actually do unite us. How, how does that change occur? Where does that dialogue begin? You're such a faithful companion here, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, this is so good. Yeah, uh, what a, you know, that's, that's, that, that is, of course, that's the question. Right? That's the question. The church in the United States of America has, you know, has failed on this mm -hmm. account in that we more often reflect society uh, then we do, uh, you know, we more often, you know, are like a thermostat, which measures the temperature, than we are like, oh, excuse me, the other way around, a thermometer, 
which measures the temperature. Then we are like a thermostat, which kind of sets the temperature. And so we who are called out, the church, which is the called out bunch, you know, we need to take that seriously in terms of the kind of categories that we that we use for inclusion. So I would say it starts with repentance. We have to see and repent of our own sin of racism. And how frequently? Probably daily. You know, it's probably like dying and rising daily. And say, you know what, this is a challenge for me. I actually don't like people who have this kind of accent, you know. Or I uh, just kind of noting it, you know. I don't like, I, I, I struggle with people who are like this. Just to kind of just own that, own that. So repentance is the first place. But repentance, you know, and then the scripture says, you know, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. So then now you got to do something different, you know. You have to behave differently. There's an ethic uh, that needs to flow from repentance. Uh, true repentance always leads to good works. And so there are certain good works. And, you know, one of those works is called hospitality. <laughs> so a lack of hospitality is actually a sin. Uh, and I don't know if you hear much about that, you know, in our, in our, you know, to be inhospitable to others is actually a sin. You know, if we want to, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's not about a change in our doctrines. You know, the, the LCMS is the third most white and English speaking church body, Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, third most white and speaking English white and English-speaking church body in the, in the United States of America, according to the Pew. The ELCA, a very progressive church body, is the is the second most, uh, oh, excuse me, is the, is the most homogenous church body. Uh, the, the most homogenous church body in, in, the, in the United States is the National Baptist Convention, which is, which is 99% African-American. Um, hmm. And then right after, and it's because of enforced segregation, so that was like, that was they had no choice uh but the lutheran church bodies are at the bottom of this list and one is you know more conservative in terms of its public theology and the other is much much more progressive in terms of its public theology so it shows that theology is not the issue here you know neither is it by the way the solution here right <laughs> uh the problem is the problem is you know the way we behave you know it's it's our it's our ethic and it's the way we share power it's it's it's, it's a simple question about who's at the table I, I say often, if, if you if you don't have a seat at the table, then you just might be on the menu. So be careful. We need to figure out ways of getting more people to the table uh, who are not you know like us. Uh, the, the table where we make decisions, you know, because at the end of the day, that's where kind of power is. Um, so that's that's for starters. Um, I would say. Okay, so let me then ask, because I like that whole kind of analogy of getting people to the table. Jesus was always in trouble for the people at his table. Uh, yeah. uh, so so how do we, as a... And by the way, Jesus, you know, just, just a, Jesus, look at his disciples. I mean, he's got, like, Simon the Zealot, who, by the way, wants to overthrow the government. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, you know. It surely doesn't want to pay taxes. And then he's got Matthew, the tax collector, who's an agent of the government, you know. So, I mean, Jesus is putting all kind of different kind of people at the table together who, you know, uh, because, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of built into the creation as well. If you look at what God does in terms of on the day of Pentecost, you know, the dispersion of languages into the reversing the curse of Babel, you know, sending the languages into the world. So, 
you know, um, yeah, I, okay, I'm sorry, you, I interrupted no, that's you, okay. Chuck. Because you were talking about Jesus, I shouldn't have interrupted. No, that's, <laughs> about Jesus. Trust me, I'm one of the dummies, you can always interrupt. Um, but, but it's interesting because talking about Pentecost, which is, we celebrate it today, it's evident, so base, you know, there are some Jewish scholars that think that the 70 nations represented at that point all of the world. So that Jesus is sending this gospel message out to, to everyone that could hear it in a language that they could understand. So clearly, that's still the case today on Pentecost, that God desires that message to be taken to every language, not based on a color or a language or a location. So uh, how do we, I mean, I know we have missionaries and things like that, but with, there's a diversity in America. There's a diversity within Tulsa, uh, within Minneapolis or Bronxville. How do we as a white church, for lack of a better term, but you pointed out what's what we are, how do we maybe speak a language that's more about hospitality and inviting people to the table? Um, you know, if we're having... So I used to teach at an inner city school in Houston. And the kids there always joked when they came down for lunch, they'd say, Pastor Chuck, what are you having, casserole? Because to them, that's what a white middle-class teacher would eat, is a casserole. And so if our potlucks are all casseroles, how do we reach out to people that don't want to eat casserole? That's so good. You know, food is a great place to start, Pastor Chuck. Yeah, no You know, and how hard is it? You know, hey, we're going to have a community event. Everybody bring, yeah, you know, like, there you go, you with your potluck. Maybe not in this time of COVID. We can't be <laughs> right. uh, You know, which is, you know, I wonder if this is the hand of God, you know, in some ways, you know, is it, through this thing. Because it is just so painful. It's a Eucharistic yes. fast. Man, it's so painful. It is. But nonetheless, um, uh, yeah, I mean, how hard is it to, you know, invite different kind of people? And then, and then when you invite them, uh, and by the way, I, I'm not talking about inviting them to church. I'm just talking about invite them to something, an event. Open your doors and just get to know them. Know their names. That's a good place to start. Just know. I, I sit, when people ask me, well, how do you do this? It's, it's, it's not really complicated, you know. <laughs> There's a story told about Bill Clinton. I just remembered it. And uh, uh, there was a, a reporter asking the kind of questions that reporters ask. And she asked Bill Clinton, uh, she said, uh, President Clinton, uh, I've been noticing that, uh, you know, black people really like you. Is it because you play the, you know, saxophone? And, you know, is that why? Is it what? And uh, a great question, huh? <laughs> and uh, Mr. Clinton said, President Clinton said, well, you know, I found out something about black people. They're a lot like us. They <laughs> like people. They like people who like them. <laughs> so in some ways it's yeah. you know it's it's the sesame street question you know who are the people in your neighborhood in your neighborhood exactly. in, and then it's the mr rogers question won't you be my neighbor hmm. you know it's really i you know i think we make it a lot more complex than it is it's about getting to know people and listening to them hearing their hurts hearing their hearts building relations with relationships with them building bridges with them and then building a church with them and that's the preposition i know chuck you like these 
these these these these words and these parts <laughs> of speech. You know, it's this preposition. It's not at them. It's not for them. It's not to them. It's not none of those. It's it's with them. Okay. So it's the kind of the the witness of our witness. The witness of our witness. Our witness is a witness witness. And we walk with people. I like that. And build a church with people. Um, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I like a lot, he has his book called Life Together. And in that book he says that the first service we owe others is to listen to them. And then he goes on to say that when you stop listening to your neighbor, it will not be long before you stop listening to God. Which is you know, mm. powerful, scary, the law. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Would you say that maybe the church has been arrogant in, in thinking that you know if we build the church, they will come instead of the church going out and? Yeah, yeah, sure. The church is who is this? Is Bruce again? Yeah, no, this yeah. this is Guy. Oh, Guy. I'm sorry, Guy. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, you're more than. You know the IT guy. You actually, this is this is this is a good question. So yeah, arrogant. But I think we got to be careful with that because I think the only thing worse than arrogant is false humility. Mm. Yeah. I like that too. You know, I, I really and and the, and the only thing worse than um, over optimism is uh, is false hope. Um, but the only thing worse than arrogance is this kind of oh you know as if we don't bring anything to the table you know or as if we can't oh we can't say anything because you know we're just in this kind of deferential second position to these cultures that we have now fetishized right um so i think it's it's it, 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 it's, it's it's about you know being who we are <laughs> you know it's, it's about authenticity and integrity and, and 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 seeing others as people created in the image of God, who God takes seriously, so seriously that Jesus Christ died for them. And uh, we ought to take them seriously as well. Okay, so I'm going to ask the $50,000 question, maybe. So, as I hear you talking, it's not a doctrinal issue. It's not a stylistic worship issue. For us to reach a different community, a different culture, a different ethnicity, it's more about our refusal to meet people as they are, or getting to know them as they are. Would you say correct? Or yeah, I would say that's that's correct. It's not a doctrinal issue, um, and it's not a liturgical versus you know not so-called non-liturgical worship, as if that were possible. Um, you know, everyone develops liturgies, um, (laughs) but we, exactly, but we, but we do understand that, you know, the confessions do say that, you know, the community of God in every time and place has the right power and authority to change or reduce or expand practices like worship, as long as it's done in an orderly way, um, in a way that's in keeping with, um, you know, good order and evangelical decorum uh, for the building up of the church. So I do think that uh, while it's not a question of doctrine and it's not a question of worship style, it may be a question of figuring out where the line is between theology and culture. There's some things I think we call doctrine that are just much more like um, 
cultural than they are really doctrinal. Sure. And there's some things we call, you know, necessary or essential to worship that are much more uh, cultural as well. So I, I, it does not mean that doctrine, it's not a question. So I would, I would say yes, I agree with your good question. It's not a question of doctrine or culture uh, or, 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 you know, worship style. But it, that doesn't mean that we ought not, uh, with neighbors, look at how we interpret you know, various doctrinal and liturgical questions. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's, it's somewhat giving them a seat at the table to, to discuss with us what worship could look like. Yep. That, that's it. Okay. We want, we want re- worship to be reverential. What is, that, what is reverence? You know, because different cultures have different approaches to reverence. You know, so there might be some place where we meet in the middle and we say, you know, I always think that in worship, everybody's got to be singing everybody else's songs. If you're singing only your own songs, then you're not, then the church is not Catholic anymore. By which I mean universal. Good point. You know, we we, we got we should we should all sing songs that kind of make us wow. That's kind of a tricky song for me to sing. <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm not used to clapping on <laughs> the second and fourth beats. Wait. You know, um, wait. Our Lutheran hymn book has a labore, isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that one you got to clap on every beat. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> God has given us, and, by, and this is my this is uh, this is my concluding comment, uh, if I may, Pastor Chuck. Sure. You know, kind of kind of land here. What an opportunity! You know, so God does nothing by mistake. There are no unsupervised processes in the universe. There are no kind of coincidental. Jesus Christ was not born by accident at the eastern end of the Mediterranean <laughs> Sea at the crossroads. Of African and Asian and European cultures, there. I mean, that was on purpose and design that God sent Jesus to that crossroads of you know of creation. Um, and I believe that God is up to something also in the United States of America with our amazing and marvelous diversity. And if we can figure out ways of embracing this for the sake of the gospel, not for its own sake. So diversity for its own sake, I believe actually is not helpful. But diversity for the sake of the gospel, as a kind of pre, a foretaste, a, 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 a preliminary look, a glimpse into the glory that God has for us, that will only be finally and fully achieved in the eschaton, in eternity. But for now, at least we can get a little glimpse, a foretaste of that feast to come at another table, right? right. <laughs> Eucharistic <laughs> table, where, you know, where, uh, where people from, you know, tribe and nation are, are assembled. And it won't be a perfect community. You know, but God's built into us a, a kind of desire for that uh, because he's built heaven into us. He's built eternity into us. And that's why, that's why these people are protesting. They don't know what they're protesting about, I don't think, in most cases, or what they're protesting for. But it's because God has built in them that they know that they're made for more, that we as humans are meant for more, and that life has got to be better than this. They know that. And by the way, they're right about that. We, we must do better. Uh, they just don't know how to get there. And that's, that's, that's the advantage, I believe, that we bring if we own it. Well said. Well said. Thank you very much. Uh, 
So I try to summarize all of that into a sentence, but I don't think we can. We're not smart enough on this end to summarize that at all. But uh, that's, why that's why that's your power. That's your secret weapon. You call yourselves dummies. Exactly. Well, we appreciate you uh, being on our show, our first guest. Um, hopefully, not our last guest, and uh, hopefully, you'll be open to coming back sometime and being part of our uh, discussion again. Chuck, Guy, Bruce, I'm honored to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, taking this seriously. This makes my heart really glad uh, that you're taking this so very seriously. Uh, blessings to you and all your work. God's blessings, blessings to, to you. you. Thank you. Thank you.